You ever have one of those records in your collection that you keep going back to time and time again? For whatever reason, that album fits your mood regardless of what that mood might happen to be. Or maybe it's a particular song you play when you're angry or sad or whatever it is. For me, Bob Mould has released a bunch of those kinds of albums over the last 37 years. Whether you're talking about his work with Husker Du back in the 80s like Zen Arcade or New Day Rising, or whether it's with the band Sugar back in the 90s, or whether it's any one of his 15 solo records, I go back to Bob Mould's music almost constantly. His latest record, Blue Hearts, is being released this week, and it's one of Bob's angriest, most politically enraged records in years. And believe it or not, that's the Bob Mould that I like best. And with the world being what it is right now, the timing couldn't be better to talk to Bob Mould on Baxi's Musical Podcast. What is it? What is it? It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. So here's a little background. In 1979, guitarist Bob Mould and drummer Grant Hart formed the band Husker Du in Minneapolis with bass player Greg Norton. Initially, Husker Du were a raucously loud and relentless hardcore band, but that would change with each passing album as the songwriting got better and better and the musicianship became tighter and tighter. The band released six studio albums over the course of four years, ripping out a prolific number of songs on some of the best albums of the decade. But in 1988, after several years of drugs and creative differences and personal disagreements, Husker Du disbanded. In 1989, Bob Mould released his very first solo record called Workbook, and it would have almost nothing in common with his ear-splitting work with Husker Du. Instead, it was a largely acoustic-sounding record by comparison. And while some fans were left slightly confused by the change in direction, the album showed a significantly more tuneful side of Bob Mould, which would be the direction he would follow for the remainder of his career. Whether it be with the two albums and the EP he released with the band Sugar or with the rest of his solo work, like his 1996 Hubcap album or Silver Age in 2012 or his 2014 follow-up Beauty and Ruin, Bob Mould has matured into one of the finest songwriters of his generation. And it ain't just me saying this. He is generally regarded as just that. And the new album, Blue Hearts, is absolutely no exception. This is my conversation with the great Bob Mould on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. I was almost going to tell you to put me back on hold. That uh, background music was really, really good. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, I want to start off by saying, and I mean this in, in only the nicest way possible, it's really good to have the angry Bob Mould back. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I keep hearing from people. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's a shame that it took all of these, you know, horrible calamities to get you there. But I, I think, you know, as, as a longtime, you know, fan, this is the Bob Mould that I'm, I'm most used to. It's like, the Bob Mould is like a comfortable shoe. There you go. There, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm uh, I'm still waiting for my uh, for my CD to come in. So I I have heard a couple of the new songs, and uh, on Blue Hearts, and I think, you know, I know that some of these songs were mixed, you know, back in in March. Did you have to do anything to make them a little bit more, you know, relevant as you were getting closer to releasing this thing, or or were they kind of ready to go and, and angry enough no uh american crisis the first song that people heard that was written two and a half years ago and the album was mastered and delivered by march 1st so that's that's that was when i let go of it and that's pre-pandemic pre-george floyd pre a lot of things I and mean, that's it's remarkable how relevant it sounds even 
without all of those things inspiring you in that way. But I mean, it's 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 a remarkable song. Yeah, thanks. It. Uh, I mean, you know, these kind of problems in the world, you know, especially with uh, authority, you know, people who fancy themselves to be authoritarians. It's, uh, you know, the, the problems never really change. I guess just this time they're uh, they're coming at us so fast and from all directions, right? Right. Last year, you released uh, Sunshine Rock, which, you know, everyone was saying is, you know, the optimistic, you know, Bob Mould. And, and, and I love that, too. But it's just it obviously this is a, a, a much different tone. Was was there a specific thing that that changed for you? I mean, obviously, you wrote the, the new song during that time. But was it there a spark that led to this? Well, I mean, having American Crisis in pocket, you know, I didn't really fit on Sunshine Rock. And I just kept writing through 2019 after the, you know, after Sunshine Rock came out. And I think the turning point as far as the the narrative of the record happened about a year ago when I was still living in Berlin, Germany. So I had this moment where the third year of the Trump administration was feeling awfully similar to the third year of the uh, Reagan administration. Mm. And that got me thinking, that got me looking back on my, on who I was when I was 22 years old as opposed to 59 or 58, I guess, at that time. And, uh, you know, I think the capper was coming back, uh, leaving Berlin in late November of last year, coming back to America and just being thoroughly, you know, disillusioned with how polarized the country had become, how, you know, just how ridiculous news as entertainment had become, you know, just really hard to find truth anywhere. And at that point, I just start writing and this is what we get. Yeah. Well, you know, when you look at it that way and and you look at like Zen Arcade, for example, and that, you know, takes you back to 1984 when you're talking about, you know, the Reagan administration and then have the perspective of living in Europe, particularly in, in, in Germany. Were you getting a sense when you were living there of, of what was actually going on here, or did it take coming back to really see it? No, I was I was pretty on top of what was happening. But again, I think it's, you know, being in Berlin, which is, you know, a, a very progressive place in, in terms, you know, the, the news is actually quite boring because they treat it as news, not as entertainment. You know, so it's a place where I would be out walking during the day and at least once a week would stumble into a large public protest. And, you know, that's what democracy is about, right? right. You know, and, you know, and, to, and I guess to come back here and see a government that's trying to, you know, tear gas people, suppress the citizens, you know, silence any, any opposition, it's, you know, those are the things that, really, I guess, get under my skin. Now, you know, I think for me, the, you know, the really heavy parallels came more along the lines of, you know, Reagan being sort of a tele, you know, telegenic sort of celebrity president who had a lot of evangelical backing and then seeing Trump being the same way. And then thinking about what the 80s were like as a young gay man, you know, being told by, you know, evangelicals that, you know, AIDS was God's punishment and that I should die or be rounded up or tattooed or whatever they were talking about. But, uh, you know, I think it's just, you know, sort of bringing my story to light and, you know, again, writing a song two and a half years ago and then now, you know, seeing so many people who are marginalized, whether it's the LGBTQ community or Mm -hmm. people of color, you know, immigrants, you know, anybody who, you know, anybody who might be 
disadvantaged financially, you know, socioeconomically. It's you know, it, it, this is this is what you know when we're when we're made out to be others, right. you know. So then we can be demonized. So you know, those are the sh- you know that's the kind of story I was intending to share. And then you know the world took a turn in late May, you know, with Breonna Taylor's right. murder and George Floyd's murder, and you know that I just had to start listening and learning to Black Lives Matter and paying more attention to politics and you know really trying to make my voice heard before I before I get silenced it's it's interesting how and you and I are not that far apart I'm, I'm 54 you're 59 it, it, it's it's interesting how the how our maturity our years kind of change the way we we view the world I'm sure it's even as you're talking about you know the Reagan administration in the 80s you still have a different perspective and like how you're going to word these thoughts and these passions today than if you had been doing it 35 years ago. Well, in speaking with you now, being mindful that there are probably people listening who disagree completely with what I'm saying, I'm trying to be civil about it. <laughs> but in my work, I have the freedom to speak in any way I choose. Yeah. And, you know, I do as I do with you as well, but I prefer to make a, a civil case as opposed to a belligerent case. I'll save that for my music. Well, but it's to me, it's not even. I wouldn't even call it belligerent. I would, I would call it honest, and I would call it passionate. You know, to me, belligerent would be there's a sense of irresponsibility to it. But I think what you're addressing actually is criticizing those who are responsible for a lot of what you're talking about. I mean, for example, one of the the, the songs that that uh, stood out for me was a song, you know, "Forecast of Rain" about the Catholic Church. That's a very oh, uh... That's that seems yeah. That's a powerful statement that I don't think is belligerent at all. I th- I think it's it's right on the screws. Well, I mean, you know, it's you know, I was raised Catholic, and I think for me, forecast of rain is just a general look to religion. Not you know, I mean, more perhaps evangelicals than Catholics. Although you know, if the if the uh, if the shoe fits, wear it. The idea of hypocrisy, and you know, I mean, when we when we see an episode like Jerry Falwell Jr. over the past few weeks, you know, having to step aside in disgrace after being found out that he was, you know, having male escorts pleasure his wife while he watched, which in and of itself I have absolutely no problem with. <laughs> but when you try to when you try to condemn me for just simply living my life, surely this hypocrisy must be pointed out. You, you've had now, what is this? Is this your 15th solo record in the last 30 years? Somebody said, somebody, somebody said 14th. I have a box set with 24 CDs coming out. Next oh, I know month I, I, of and, all the solo work. I don't, I don't even know. It's like, that's, I just 24, 14. I'm actually not sure. Mike, I don't, keep but, but if I, and I'll get to the box set in a little bit. Cause I'm, I am, I'm really intrigued by it, but, but by today's standards, that's still a hell of a lot of music. I mean, that's a very prolific career. When, when you are motivated or inspired to write something, are you are you writing every day, or is it is it an easy well to tap into, or is it uh, more of a more of a challenge to get that stuff out? Generally, I describe my process as being the guy with the big rain bucket, and when it starts <laughs> to rain, I go outside and catch the rain, and then I figure out later what to do with the water. <laughs> so, I mean, that's sort of my overview of how I look at my work. Um, yeah, I tend to write. I keep notes all the time. I tend to sit down and at least try to write music every day. Some days, you know, it's like 16 bars of nothing. Some right. days it's 
two and a half really good songs. It's, it's a sort of an unpredictable process, but, you know, as I'm gathering rainwater and as I'm, you know, the sort of the deliberate process of sitting down with the tools to work every day, you know, at some point, a central theme or a central idea, you know, both musical and lyrical will appear and that becomes a tent pole. And at that point, my job is to secure the tent corners, the poles and the fabric. And that's how albums get put together. Yeah. It's it's sort of a mysterious process, but I just I just roll with it. Yeah, I I remember seeing you guys and when you were in Husker Du back in in 1987. I was uh, I saw you at the Eagles Club in Milwaukee, and uh, I remember it being cold, impossibly loud. You guys played like 9,000 songs that night, but it was it was great. And you know, I I, I watched you and I watched Grant watch you guys you know interact. And I know it was kind of on the la- the latter part of you guys as a band, but you have two brilliant songwriters in a, in a band was was there ever a, like a competitive spirit between you guys that that made you want to write better or was it just it just it just came out before for both of you i think so i mean i don't think it was a specific i'm going to one up you but i mean when when you've got a number of creative forces and i guess with Hooskers, myself and grant being the primary songwriters it, it was always wanting to make sure the work was of a high quality you know and and you know that kind of Competition is going to be there naturally, you know. I think it's for the greater good. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think I you know I don't I hope that it didn't never turn never turn counterproductive. But uh, you know I know I know when the band broke up, I think both of us were you know pretty satisfied to go our separate ways and continue on with our own work. So well, I, I think more music for more music for everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think any fan is going to sit there and say, you know, that, boy, that album just wasn't up to snuff. I mean, there are some people that are going to say that, but I think you guys progressed from, you know, being basically a, a hardcore band to something much more tuneful and much more important, I think, as you guys went on. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, we started out, you know, as three guys in St. Paul who emulated the music that we liked, and then we tried out a bunch of different sounds and styles and we eventually fell into a groove sort of a hardcore punk groove and you know as time went on it got more melodic i think in terms of that band's history i would say the zen arcade new day rising flip your wig pocket is probably the strong period of the band you know a double double album and two single albums in was it 14 months yeah, I mean it's it, that's an incredibly quick amount of time, and 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 Zen Arcade to put you know that much music and and weren't most of those songs done in a single take? Yeah, pretty much everything with Husker Du, the, the best of my best I can recall, we were always a first take in the studio band. I mean we we would write songs, we would rehearse them. You know, Husker Du was the kind of band that play. You know, we tried out new material on the road well before we recorded it. Uh, I think there was a point during the tail end of Zen Arcade touring that we were already playing songs off Flip Your Wig, which was two albums later. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, we were we were always writing and we were always playing new stuff for people. So it was, uh, yeah, there was a, it was a really prolific time. When uh, when Grant died a couple of years ago, I, I, I re- recall something that you had written uh, about him online. And it was it was a, it was very, very moving and very touching. And uh, it, like I said, as a, as a fan of Husker Du, you always wonder, well, what was that relationship, you know, really like? And I know that you know there was obviously you know tension towards the end, but 
you guys did have a chance. I don't know if it was, you would call it a reconciliation, but you did have a chance to to speak to him uh, towards the end of his life. What what was that that relationship like between you and Grant? Uh, we were pretty cordial with each other. I mean, we stayed in touch over the years. Obviously, we were together in a band, so there was always a, a shared business of sorts to attend to. Uh, nobody, you know, nobody really did much on their own with Who's Could Do Stuff. There was always sort of a collective approach to it, you know, whether it was through attorneys who sort of acted as managers mm-hmm. or whether whether it was me and Grant talking about stuff. Um, you know, I think the myth, I think rock and roll is always filled with a lot of great mythology, and I think that people like to amplify the acrimony between us, and we laughed. You know, I remember we would laugh about that even to the end. We just thought it was really funny, and at times it was almost as if you know you want you you want you. We could almost choose to make it worse for the for you know if we wanted to 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 get people talking, but we never did that. We just sort of you know tried to try to get through things as best we could. And I think that the box set that came out in 2017, the Savage Young Do, is a yeah you know, a real, real fitting conclusion to, you know, our, you know, to that, to that band's recorded output and to, you know, all the work that Grant put in on, in, in those last years towards that box set. It's really, really a nice testament to, to the band and to, to the work. When, uh, when you guys broke up and uh, you released that first solo record workbook, this was, uh, 89, I think it would be. That's, mm-hmm. That would yep. that would explain the name of the box set. But there were some people who were a little turned off because it didn't sound like Husker Du. And I was not one of those guys. I was one of those guys who thought, well, if you've been in Husker Du, why would you want to continue to be in Husker Du if there's no Husker Du? And I thought that that album was, every song stood on, on its own, and it seemed to be a blueprint of what you would do for the next couple of years. When you started working on that album, were you definitively trying to to break free of that Husker Du jacket? Yeah, uh, it would it would be foolish to leave a band like Husker Du only to sound like Husker Du later on your own. It's you know, I mean, I, I really wanted to relearn how to write music, how to present myself. I, it was it was nice to have that freedom. You know, I mean, Husker Du is a great band, but. To have a year and a half working in solitude, where you know, away from the music business, you know, just trying to figure out what to do with the instrument, trying to figure out how to be a, a better, deeper writer, and that was the challenge for me. And and of course, trying you know, just trying to be mindful of you know, don't duplicate what you just did. I think the the the, the moment it starts with the uh, with the guitar solo, sunspots, and then goes into wishing well. It's like, all right, Bob's doing something totally different. And I can't deny how great all these songs were. This is when, from from my perspective, your songwriting definitively changed, and maybe for the better. Because, and as great as Husker Du was, these are songs I think were beginning to more reflect who you were rather than you know what the band was all about. Absolutely, that's an absolutely accurate way to look at it. I mean, that's the luxury of. You know everything after Husker Du is if it, if it carries my name or you know with Sugar being a band in in name but mo, you know primarily my compositions. Right. I mean that's the you know it's all the responsibilities on me and the, and it's that beauty of trying to add you know add to your own personal language. 
I mean, you know, the the early stuff is really great, and that's a, you know, and, and workbook was a workbook was a really great surprise to people. It was a surprise to me. I didn't I didn't think it would. I didn't think I would make a record that sounded like that. And as time went on, you know, going to Sugar and Forward, you know, it's just carrying, you know, carrying all of those threads with me, you know, the early threads, the the early solo threads. And you just keep using, you know, keep using those styles and trying to build on them and, you know, occasionally taking really crazy turns, you know, up through, you know, the electronica era and, you know, now sort of coming back to, Coming back to a you know sort of a protest record, it's like wow, what a journey. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you about Sugar because Copper Blue is one of my favorite all-time records. I absolutely love it. It's one of those you know records. Actually, there's a bunch of your records that I keep going back to over and over again. And Copper Blue is one of them. But I know I, I've, I've heard it, it, it described that your reaction to the uh, the third record, you know, File Under Easy Listing, was not as positive as as Copper Blue, and yet. I still think there's great songs on that record. So is it, I mean, is that true that you didn't really care for how that third record came out? Cause I think you're being too hard on yourself. Oh, thanks for that. I mean, yeah, Copper Blue and Beaster is a hell of a one, two punch and very, very hard to follow up. Um, you know, I, th- I think if I look back on that record, I, I mean, I like that record. I mean, I, there's songs like your favorite thing that I play at almost every show. I love, I love a handful of the songs still on there. I think where that record may have suffered was just the sheer amount of concentrated touring that went in right, you know, into the two years before that record you know, was recorded. I was exhausted. I didn't have enough time to write. I mean, I had plenty of songs and it's funny when, you know, when people hear the collection of rarities in the box set, you know, take all of the, take all of the B sides and outtakes from, the fuel sessions and put those together as what should have been side two. You know, it's to me, it's, I made, I made a three sided record and the side two that I released was maybe not the stronger of the, of the side twos, if that makes any sense. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think, I think the songs were there, but maybe, I, you know, I just thought with the second side, I thought oh, maybe go a little more acoustic, maybe go a little bit more in a country type direction. Yeah. I was living in Austin, Texas at the time. And, you know, I was digging on those kind of riffs, and yeah, just sometimes you just make a decision, and you, you, what it, it is, what it is. I'm I'm glad you're looking at uh, <laughs> file under easy listening a little bit uh, a little bit kinder, because yeah, yeah, we're just starting off our friendship here, and I hate to have to fight you on that one. So <laughs> that's right. Okay. <laughs> so the the box set is really interesting. It's a distortion 1989 to 2019 24. CD box set signed limited to a thousand copies. If you want to get your signature on it, I don't know when you go back and you look at that much music and your perspective on things changes again with age, you, you do look at parts of your life with, with a different, uh, with a different viewpoint. When you look back at all of those things, are, are there parts of your solo career that you look at more fondly? I mean, you, you mentioned the albums of Husker Du that you think were the most uh, fertile. Do you feel that way about your solo work too? Uh, yeah, I mean, in putting the box set together, you know, it goes from Workbook through Sunshine Rock, which was last year's solo album on Merge. Um, it's funny. There's, you know, there's that middle period in my career. I guess the 2000s where. I stepped away from guitar rock and gravitated towards electronica and towards mm-hmm. dance music. And that was real. That was a really important 
decade for me, just in my growth as a person, as a gay man, sort of connecting with my community real deeply, doing a lot of DJ work, you know, just looking at music from a different, from a different perspective. And, you know, I know how confusing those records may have been for the longtime fans. So I'll be curious to see how people react to them as this box that is presented as like a, a through line, you know, a sort of a continuum of 30 years. And also in the sense that, you know, Modulate, the first electronic record came out in early 02, and shortly after that album came out, the Postal Service appeared. And, you know, all of a sudden people started listening to electronic music or it started making its way into indie rock or alt rock or, or you know, whatever, you know, stuff, stuff, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I, the only thing... So I'll, be cur- I'll be curious to see how, I'll be curious to see how, how those records look to people 20 years later. I think for me, I love the songs. The auto-tune was hard yeah. for me to, to, to necessarily get to get past but, but but the songs themselves i thought were all good well thanks yeah and and now you i mean in you know i think ever since maybe 07 you can't get away from auto tune <laughs> right but <laughs> well, that no that is true but you know the but the albums that i go to uh, you know time and time again and I, and i and i mean this totally sincerely the the self-titled album from 96 beauty and ruin silver age for for whatever reason like those three and copper blue are the ones that have for me have really kind of stood the test of time and I keep going, I keep going. I mean, I got a bunch of you know CDs and albums in my house. Those are the ones I'll keep going back to time and time again. Yeah. The, the 96 album, the, what I call the hubcap album, the eponymous album that, you know, that was like a really, you know, just like a highly crafted lo-fi home recording type record that I loved putting that record together. It was a really dark time for me personally and a real dark record, but it's, Still got a, you know, when I was listening back and, you know, to the to the mastering of, you know, the 2020 mastering of it, it, it uh, I was just like, wow, I really love the way this record sounds. Yeah. And and Silver Age, and Silver Age, of course, I mean, I was coming off of the, you know, uh, you know, my autobiography coming out in 2011. You know, a lot of the work that I was doing with Foo Fighters and the, you know, the Disney Hall tribute show in November of 2011. I mean, that was a lot of a lot of love and a lot, you know, people, you know, sort of paying the respects to the songbook. And it gave me a lot of energy and, you know, really, you know, and getting John Worcester and Jason Narducci on board full time. You know, the, that was the first of five records that we recorded and toured together. And yeah. know, just everything really fell into place on, on Silver Age and you know, sort of been just cranking them out ever since then and yeah and, you know, real high quality records they really i mean they really are and 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 the the hubcap record i mean fort knox king solomon is i think is one of my all-time favorite bob mold songs oh thanks yeah um, it's uh, my attempt to outdo hoover dam well, it didn't work but it was close well i i love it i i, I just think it's just a it's a it's a beautifully written uh, written song I, I I do need Thank to ask you. you about another part of your of your career, which I I think is 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 really fascinating. I know that you took a break from music for a while to start uh, working for the WCW. I know you're a passionate uh, wrestling fan, and I also know that you grew up uh, in upstate New York, which you know back in the '70s, uh, most of professional wrestling were regional federations. So I'm pretty sure we probably watched the same wrestlers growing up do you do you remember who some of your favorite wrestlers were as a kid well i mean if I, you're probably you probably grew up on wwf yeah 
Would you, would you have been a Bruno, Bruno Pedro, Bruno, yep. superstar, back one through that era? Well, yeah, in fact, yes, I was. And a couple of years ago, uh, on uh, on my uh, my radio show, we interviewed Bob Backlund, and he actually oh, put Lord. he actually put me in the cross face chicken wing, and I got to tell you that shit hurt like a bastard. He was like he was not holding up. Yeah, he 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 yeah, put me in. It. Well, you should be you should be happy happy that he did not make you do the Harvard step. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think after the- or listen to or or listen to one of his babyface promos. Well, I yeah, that was the other thing I didn't want to. <laughs> I think after the chicken wing, I was like, okay, good to see you, Bob. Let's uh, thanks for coming in today. Uh, yeah, that was very. Well, I, I mean, I mean, out of, out of out of Vince McMahon's territory. I mean, there there was some great wrestling. I mean, I mean, there was the sort of the original Rat Pack of heels. You know, was it Ivan Koloff or any lad superstar Billy Graham mm-hmm. who? You know, co- collectively, when they were all in the territory together, they made Vince McMahon's life miserable because they all demanded equal main event pay, no matter where they were on the card. Yeah, <laughs> those are good good times in pro wrestling. Those, those were because they used to have you know wrestling out of Worcester, Massachusetts, which is probably you know within an hour from from where we're, where I'm at now. And and I remember you know the the days you'd be excited because Haystacks Calhoun was going to be. You know, in the ring, and and you know, how do you how do you root against a six hundred pound man or uh, you know the Polish Hammer Ivan Putski? I mean, those those are classic, classic guys. Oh my gosh, yeah. It's, well, I mean, yeah, that territory. I mean, there was a lot of homesteaders in the Northeast. Chief J Strongbow, yep, Putski, yep. Haystacks was an attraction. Andre was an attraction. Absolutely. There were got the Val- the Valiant Brothers. <laughs> you know, but I grew up. I actually, as far as wrestling stuff, I mean, I I know that I know the history of the territory, but I grew up watching uh, Montreal wrestling. And I was really lucky that, you know, the era of the Montreal wrestling wars in the 72, 73, 74, where the, where the Rougeau family had a promotion, the Bichon family had a promotion. It was these, you know, a territorial war between two amazing wrestling companies at the same time in Montreal. And yeah. a lot of the guys from New York would come up and work the big shows. So I, yep. I'm not, my, my, I could talk wrestling forever, so we'll stop now. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, uh, but you were a a, a script writer uh, at the WCW. Is that right? Is that right? Uh, technically, I was a creative consultant. I was brought in to help with television, to come up with ideas, to come up with characters, to come sort of try to guide the guide a different philosophy. And I was in, you know, I was in for about a month and a half, and then. A couple other guys got hired away from uh, from the WWF at the time, and they came in and they had a completely different philosophy than what I was trying to get people to consider. And you know, I, I still, you know, I enjoy, I enjoyed the work. You know, I worked. You know, I ran Gorilla, which was crazy. You know, the, I was the guy behind the curtain giving everybody the cues and all that nonsense. But uh, yeah, it was a fun fun gig. Crazy business. Yeah. 1999, still a lot of. Still a lot of uh, bad behavior, I guess, in the business. So. Well, when when you're when you're talking about being on the creative end of professional wrestling, that I don't know, I'm going on a limb here, but almost suggests that some of that might have been fake. Uh, I, everything everything you see really happens. <laughs> that I, that, I'm, that I'm sure is true. So uh, the uh, the the name of the, the new album is, is is Blue Hearts. It really is a very very powerful record, and I'm and I'm anxious to get to get a chance to listen to the rest of it. I, I've heard. You know, a couple of songs that have been, uh, you know, released online, and it's it's freaking awesome. 
and the uh, the box set. There are there's are there two versions of the box set? Yeah, to try to I'll try to describe this really quickly to people. So the box set is titled Distortion. It covers 30 years from 1989 to 2019. The the initial release on October 23rd. There's two versions. There's the 24 CD box set that includes all of the music that is involved with the package. In addition, there will be four vinyl box set editions that are staggered over the course of one year. So on October 23rd, in addition to the 24-CD box, there will be the first of four vinyl boxes. And that period, I believe, is from uh, Hubcap through the end of Sugar. So that'll be Workbook Black Sheets, uh, Copper Blue Beaster, Fuel, the sides and all the associated outtakes and B sides and and collaborative things that I did with you know maybe you know, things like with with throwing muses with Vic Chestnut uh, stuff that I did with John Doe and G, DJ Bonebreak from mm. X so yeah so there'll be the there's the CD version and then there's four staggered vinyl boxes. And uh, yeah, it's a lot to a lot to a lot to take in. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a lot that I'm going to have to spend money on because uh, I can't just buy one. Well, and the and the and the, be- and the beauty of it too is inside within the packaging, there's pretty deep liner notes uh, written by Keith Cameron, who's a real uh, one of the a real highly esteemed UK music journalist. And all of the album art has been reimagined in you know in an attempt to try to create sort of a, a travelogue of places that I've lived, things that have influenced me. It's the, all of the art, all of the new artwork is really beautiful. And, uh, and then the, as you mentioned, there's limited, limited edition prints in the CD box and in the vinyl boxes that are all signed and, you know, beautiful screen prints and stuff. So it's, it's awesome. a nice package. I'm it very, sound, very happy with it. It's, it sounds like it, Bob, it's, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, I've been a, a, a very big fan and I have loved your music for years. So to talk to you today was, is a real thrill. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thanks for the support. Everybody have a good evening, okay? Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. Bob Mould. Not too bad, huh? Tell me what you think of the show. I'd love to hear from you. Email me at faxatrock102.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify. Most of all, thank you very much for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.